All right, let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Father God, I so thank you, Lord, that as we come to you, we don't come in our own strength, our own cleverness. Father, we don't come in our ability, but Lord, we come totally through the blood of Jesus Christ, through your love for us that came, went to the cross, died for us, redeemed us to yourself, give us an, a hope, a future, given us the ability to even handle so many things that are going on in this life that we would love to change you know, in this world and our own personal life. I just thank you for being there for us, Lord. And now as we open up your word and we just continue looking at your life, your earthly life and what you recorded for us, you know, we're just reminded that all of these things are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life through your name. And so, Lord, open up our hearts today to believe, to trust you and your working in our life. Thank you, Lord. In thy name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, um, we are going to end up in Matthew chapter 4, so you'd, you probably want to turn there. The other verses we'll go ahead and put up on the screen, uh, but they're in there, your outlines for you. Um, we're looking at the life of Christ, as we prayed about just a moment ago, and we come to the temptation of Jesus Christ. Remember, it was right on the heels, right after um, his baptism by John the Baptist, to declare, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It says, from that moment on, the Holy Spirit moved him into the wilderness to go for a 40-day period of fasting and of, of, of temptation. Um, but before we actually get there to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to need some background knowledge um, if we're really to understand what was going on. Why did Christ have to go? Why did God choose for Christ to go through this temptation? And I want to read some verses. We'll put them up on the projector for you. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, it says there, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So in there, a familiar portion of Scripture to us, if you're a Christian, I'm sure you've heard this many times, heard many messages on this, but verse 16 there describes for us three broad categories of sin that he pretty much lumps everything in the world of. It says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So you have those three categories, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, real quick, we're going to go a little bit deeper into these in a moment here, but the lust of the flesh deals with things that drive us to satisfy our physical desires. Many of those desires that he's talking about here are natural desires. You know, they're inbred, they're in our DNA, the need for food, you know, for warmth, for safety, um, you know, other things of the flesh, you know, that are there, that are just natural part of humanity. But it is the, the world of sin that places the fulfillment of those things ahead of, ahead of God's will in our life. So it becomes a problem when our own physical desires get placed ahead of God. And so that's what he's talking about, of the, the lust of the flesh. 
The second, the lust of the eyes, deals with the covetousness of our hearts, the craving for things, the accumulation of things that are outside of God's will, the, I need to have this to be happy. And then you have the pride of life. That's vain worldly ambitions, you know, deals in our priorities. You know, is God our greatest ambition? Is God our greatest, you know, pride? You know, but no pride in this life. It might become our work, our, you know, our job status, our, our position, you know, uh, prestige, whatever it might be. It deals in the building up of ourselves around things of the world and not building our thing, uh, life up around the things of God. So it's those three areas, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, those three areas that Satan used to bring sin into the world through Adam and Eve. Now we're all familiar, and we're not going to spend a lot of time back in Genesis chapter 3, but we're all familiar with Satan's deception in the garden. But in Genesis 3, we also have the thought process of Adam and Eve. And it says there in verse 6, this was their thought process why they decided to disobey God and eat of the fruit of the tree. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So there we have those three sins at the very beginning. It was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and the desire to, to make one wise, you know, you know, the pride of life. And I think we would all overwhelmingly agree that these three areas are common to all of us. It's a constant battle that we face with sin on this side of eternity, and we always will. This is the world. You know, kind of in, 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 in three glimpses, the sin that, we, we, that everybody deals with. And it's no coincidence that what is common to us that we are experiencing day in and day out is the exact same temptation that Christ endured in the wilderness. Now, to Matthew chapter 4, if you would with me, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we read uh, the first 11 verses. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand upon the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels to bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. All right, seated. So, folks, let's make no mistake. 
What Christ was enduring in the wilderness was very real. The hunger was real. The temptation was real. The isolation that he was experiencing, it was all real. I know I've mentioned this before when I've touched on this subject, but you know, theologians have debated this point for centuries. I mean, Jesus, because, you know, he is God. Was, he really, was there really any chance that Christ would sin? You know, they're debating, was Christ able to sin or not able to sin? And, and, and honestly, folks, the whole debate is a moat point. And, and, and it tends to water down and to trivialize the magnitude of what is happening to Christ and what is taking place for our lives, what is going on there in the wilderness in that 40 days. In Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at this more in depth a little bit later, it says this. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. So 40 days without food, 40 days without contact with other people, folks, it left Christ in need. You know, it reminded us there in Hebrews that he had to be tempted in all ways like we were. He felt it. He felt the hunger. He felt the isolation. And the very matter-of-fact way Scripture simply states it, and I, I love the simplicity of Scripture, it says in verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Folks, is that an understatement? <laughs> you know, I just got back from vacation and I'm going to make my, my pilgrimage to the land of dieting, you know, trying to atone for my indulgences on vacation. I'm not going to be fasting, but if you've ever been through, you know, these same things, you know, even just cutting back, changing your eating ha habits, how difficult it is, you know, to, to be disciplined and how the flesh and the want and the desire and the, the battle that we have going on with this. And you think about that, and, and, and ours is so small, it's so trite. You know, but still we wrestle with hunger and temptation and giving up. And, and we're not even fasting. Well, folks, that same want, that same new need that you and I have after 40 days with no food is the same want and need that Christ was experiencing. And then that need, and when, excuse me, when that need was at its peak, it says, after 40 days, he's hungry. Verse 3 says, and the tempter came to him. So after his 40 days, at his, his lowest possibly possible point of strength, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So temptation number one, let's look at it. Not only was this a temptation that played on a perceived area of vulnerability, in other words, Satan entered a place where he thought Jesus would be vulnerable. Jesus is hungry. You know, he's got an entrance point here. But it was kind of a trick question, a statement that Christ put out to him. You know, he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. It's a trick question. 
Because if you don't command them, like I'm telling you to do to become bread, then you're not the son of God. And, um, so it's, you know, but Jesus isn't going to have any part of that. Um, it's kind of interesting as I look at this temptation. Of all the three temptations, the lust of the flesh is probably the hardest one for us to understand and obey. I understand the second you know, temptation of not tempting God. I understand the third problem. There's no prob problem of coveting power. But what would be so wrong if Christ turned some stones into bread? I mean, if you think about it, there are other times in his life that he miraculously produces food. You know, out of just a couple loaves of bread and a couple small fish, he feeds, you know, close to 25,000 people. So it's not that he can't do it. It's not that he won't do it at some time. And hunger is natural. And satisfying that hunger is all part of life. So what is so wrong here? And, and that's a question we've got to ask our own lives as we are struggling in this area of the lust of the flesh. I mean, first, what's so wrong here? First, it's obvious that this period of fasting and isolation was God-ordained. I mean, it said in verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this is God-ordained. This wasn't just Jesus going through his life and, and you know, he became hungry and Satan came to him. No, this is, God is putting him through the Spirit. He is telling him to go and there's this intense time of temptation that's going to happen to his life here. So that's the first thing. Secondly, you know, we don't take orders from Satan. Our mandates, you know, they come from God, and Christ corrects that right away, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, what Jesus was saying here, and, you know, in not too many words, is I have been led by the Spirit here. I'm in this situation that I'm in because God the Father wants me to be in this situation and to short-circuit it, you know, to take a shortcut, to take, you know, is not right. Later on, you know, when he, when he multiplies fish and loaves of bread, you know, it's totally different. But he has been led by the Spirit to this struggle and to this problem. That's important for us to note. Because how many physical things that we're going through in our life do we, do we balk at of God? I mean, it could be a, a physical ailment. I know we have surgeries going on here. It could be a trial financially that you're going through, you know, looking maybe at losing your home or your job or any of those sorts of things. And, 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 and we look at those things, and, and, you know, we're just looking for a way out when maybe we need to be looking for God in the midst of it. And this is where, what Christ does. Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he points back to God in the midst of this trial that obviously God has led him to. And so there are so many things in our life that God has allowed into our life to happen. And he wants us through those things to be looking to him, not to be looking for the way out. And the temptation here is subtle because it masks disobedience to God through natural needs that we have. You know, Christ, will you disobey your father to satisfy a natural need? That's the question, basically, that's being put out here. I was talking to a, a prison inmate a while ago of why he kept getting in trouble. And he said these words. He says, I have to do the things, 
those things to get the things I want. So I have to, you know, break the law, right? I have to do wrong because there's certain needs that I have, and, and this is the way that I get them. So let me ask you, would you set aside God and his word to fulfill a natural desire that you have? Would you set aside God and maybe something he wants in your life or pursuit of God or faith in God? Would you set aside that for some pleasure or some hunger to, to satisfy your hunger or some comfort in your life or to bring you safety? What would you set aside? What would you set aside from God just to fulfill a natural desire? Now, before we answer that, you know, we can put a lot of situations here and a lot of these situations are going to hit close to home because we all have them. I have them, so I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because I'm pointing fingers back at me. But what if your job, what if your job gave you an opportunity to work on Sunday mornings and you can make some extra money? They're going to pay you double time if you will come in an extra day of the week and you will work on Sunday morning. Again, we're not talking about jobs that require it. We're talking about here is an option for you. Question, would you take it? Would you forsake the assembling of believers together for an opportunity to, to make more money and maybe to pay off some of the bills to help you get caught up, maybe whatever situation that you are in, would you do it? How about if you had a family reunion to go to this afternoon? You know, oh, so much to get ready to. Now, if it was summer, we'd talk about, you know, maybe a picnic and I got to get food ready and everything. And, you know, would, would you forsake family? Would you forsake the church family and, and gathering together in church just for the sake of being ready for your family? What about a busy week? You know, I mean, you have been going, going, and the kids have responsibilities, and you're running everything around, and Sunday comes, Sunday's our only day to get away, to be able to sleep in on Sunday mornings, and to maybe go do something that we want to do. What do you do? You know, we could talk about other desires. You know, would I go to a place that is dishonoring to the Lord just so my friends would accept me? Would I step out of God's will in a physical, sexual relationship just to fulfill a desire that, that I have? You know, you might say, well, you're not being realistic in putting these scenarios up. But you're right, I'm not being realistic. I'm being biblical. Because this is exactly what God is doing here, what Christ is doing here. Basic physical needs to not be put ahead of God and his word. And this one is difficult because we look at things and we see there's nothing wrong with working. And we should love our families and want to spend time with them. And we need time off to recharge and to relax. And, and God has made us relational, and so we need, you know, to be accepted. And, and sex is a gift that God has, has given to us. And all of these things, they only become wrong when we place them ahead of our God and our relationship with Jesus Christ. His will, his desire for our lives. For Christ to turn stones into bread at another time would, have been, would not have been any problem. But now it would have drawn him away from God's plan for his life. And basically to pour him out. To be tempted like we are being tempted. He has him there. He has Jesus suffering 
So he will be that sympathetic high priest that he will understand what we are going through. He's not going to be that theologian sitting upon a throne, you know, putting out, spewing out big words about life and what we should do. He's experienced it in that. He has come down. And to short-circuit that, like we so often want to do in our life, short-circuit what God is trying to do in our lives because of the flesh. And we're uncomfortable or we have pain going on in our life when all along God is trying to draw us closer to him. And we say, I'd rather have more God and less money than having less God and more money. Wouldn't you agree with that? I love my family, but God comes first before my family. I need time off for my busy week. What can I cut out? It should be anything but God. I should be looking at other things in my life you know, that I could cut out. I want friends, but I want them to be godly friends. Sex can wait until it comes under the purpose that God has ordained it between a, a husband and a wife relationship. Even the natural human desires need to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is why we struggle with this one, because you know, the natural desires are, are pulling against us. It's not just the theology and understanding faith in Christ. But we are living this. We are, we are experiencing this every day. Now, the second temptation, let's move on. The second temptation deals in tempting God. We're talking about the pride of life here in verse 5 through 7. It says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, both of these temptations begin with an element of truth that Satan twists. Under temptation one, the twist was, Hey, we all have natural desires to fulfill. So why is it such a big deal to disobey God and to fulfill these natural desires? Under temptation number two, he brings in the truth of God, God's word, but he manipulates it. You know, the, if you're reading in your Bibles, and you'll see most of your Bibles will have, you know, these words italicized that Jesus quotes to him because it comes from Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. He's quoting scripture to, to Jesus. But it's interesting, he doesn't completely get the whole quote. He only takes part of the quote. If you go all the way down, I think it's verse 15, he says, then, the serpent you will trample down. <laughs> and he, he didn't kind of bring that rest of that quote into it. So the second temptation here deals with us subjecting ourselves to the word of God versus do we subject God's word to us and what we want and to our will. In other words, you know, is it whatever God's word says, I'm, I'm going to live my life by it or I've got my life I want to live and I kind of pick and choose what God has to say so it'll kind of fit into my lifestyle. You know, this is, you know, this is what he's talking about here, you know, with the, the lust of the, the flesh, the, the pride of, of life here. We're given God's word to teach us God's will for our lives. We're not given the Bible so that we can pick and choose and to conform God to what we desire. You know, there is truth. There is absolutes here. And, and God's word is full of these absolutes. We're the ones that shade them. We're the ones that, that make 
you know, gray areas. The question is, do we listen to God's voice? Now, many of the commentaries that I read here believe that, that Satan took Christ miraculously to the temple and to the highest, says to the pinnacle of the temple, so the highest possible point, and basically told him to jump. And, you know, quoted the scripture from Psalm 91 that they said the angels would hold him up and that it would basically, the feeling is that he would float down into the temple court amongst the people. Everyone would see this. And there, Jesus is being given the option that they would make him king right then and there. So what they are thinking, that what is this temptation that Satan is putting before him? That it's a temptation to bypass the next three and a half years and to bypass the cross. You know, you come down, here's a way that you can be the king of kings. Lord, Lord, they'll make you the king right then and there. But folks, Christ's claim to the kingdom is not because he can perform miracles. I mean, in John chapter 6, remember when Christ finished feeding the 5,000 with five, you know, five loaves of bread and two fish. It says in verse 14 and 16, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which they had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come unto the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I mean, Christ's claim to the throne is not rooted in his miracles. It's not rooted in his power. But it is rooted in the death of the cro- that he died on the cross and the blood that he shed for us. That is the claim that he is going to make upon our lives. Not that I'm a miraculous God and I can, you know, feed 5,000 people or I can, you know, throw myself off a cliff and I can float down. That isn't the basis that people accept him. He wants people to accept him. His appeal to us is through the redemption of the cross to forgive our sins. He'll go on in John chapter 6, verse 27, a little later on. He says, Do not work for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. He's talking about eternal life here. He's talking about not life here and taking care of every single need here, but his appeal is to give us a new life eternal life through his shed blood. So that's temptation number two. Temptation number three. It was an attack against the sovereign will of God in Christ's life. The lust of the eyes. In verse eight, it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So we're looking here at the lust of the eyes. It's kind of interesting because you got the Gospels. Um, the, the Gospel of Luke, when it gives the account of the temptation here, it actually gives a few more details. So I'm going to read those verses for us here, verse 5 through 7. And it says, and he, Satan, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. 
Well, the first thing I want you to notice here is that Satan was making a valid offer. He wasn't just, you know, blowing steam. He is making a valid offer when he says, I will give you all these kingdoms in a moment of time, the worlds that I have shown you, I will give them to you. Why? Because they are his. When sin entered into the world, when this world fell under the condemnation, it became Satan's domain. Matter of fact, Christ in John chapter 14, 30 called Satan the prince of this world. It is and was his to give. And we know that Christ, when he came into this world, he came into this world to redeem a people unto himself. And to redeem that people and give them a what? Ultimately, a new heaven and a new earth. Not peace on this earth, not reconciling with this earth, but it's a new heaven. It's a new earth because we are new creatures in Jesus Christ. All things are passed away. All things have become new. And so again, Satan is appealing here through partial truths. Psalms 2 says that the kingdoms will be the inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ. God's will was to bring this about by the cross, you know, that new heaven and that new earth. What Satan was doing is offering Jesus a shortcut. You can avoid the cross. I will give you this inheritance. You simply need to bow down and worship me. Again, remember, this is a real temptation. Christ is weak, with hunger, with pain. And the idea of a shortcut is very real. Folks, Satan is the king of shortcuts. And the greatest temptation will be to shortcut what God is trying to do in your life. You know, to, to find a way out. And that's what he was offering Jesus. And that's why this is a temptation that every single person here can understand. When we go through trials, when we're going through hard times, difficult situations... Satan is always going to give you a shortcut. Satan is always going to use it to give you a way out. And the question is, are you going to take his offer that he gives? Well, you say, no, certainly we're not going to do that. And, and hopefully that would be true. I mean, because in bypassing God's will in our life, even when it means pain, and that's what was happening here, when Jesus said, no, I don't want the kingdoms that way, he was saying yes to the cross, that I'm going to do this God's way. He was going to embrace rejection. He was going to embrace humiliation and being beat and being scorned and the pain and the suffering. And so, you know, the shortcut was very real here. The pain was very real here. But, you know, when we short-circuit what God is doing in our life, we are short-circuiting hundreds of lives that God is trying to change around us. We're short-circuiting a testimony to those around us as to God's love and mercy in the midst of trials. I mean, that's why we, I, I always pray for those, you know, who are going in for serious things, that because of their faith, that the doctors, the nurses, other people that come around, that they will see a difference in that person's life because of Jesus Christ. And if nothing else, that is a testimony of God using and he wants in our life to go through as he's reaching the world for him. And yes, we may not like the pain. Yes, we may not like the suffering. But do we take the shortcuts that Satan is offering us? 
you know, the witness to many who need Christ as their Lord and Savior, the strengthening even of our own faith that he uses these trials. God's sovereign will leads us to many difficult times in our life. I mean, let's be honest with that. He allows these times. And at every single junction, Satan is going to be saying, forget God's plan. It's too difficult. I have a better idea. I have a shortcut for you. You know, Christ could have gained his kingdoms, but he would have lost our souls and our redemption. Verse 10, Christ answered, Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So let's take a step back here for just a moment. Let's ask, in, in the life of Christ, why is this temptation of Jesus and his victory over it, why is it so important to us? I mean, that, that we kind of see, you know, what happened behind the scenes. None of his disciples were there. Disciples hadn't even been called yet. This is just Jesus and God the Father and Satan are involved in this. We wouldn't even known this except through the Holy Spirit or Christ told the disciples and, you know, told Matthew and told Luke what had happened and, you know, or the Holy Spirit, you know, gave them knowledge. We wouldn't even know this. Why is it so important to be recorded for us here? Well, go with me to some verses that I, I read earlier. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. I think we have those verses up here for us again. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he's talking about us, we share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he became flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives for assuredly he does not give help to the angels but he gives help to the descendants of abraham therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Why was Christ tempted? Christ was tempted because you and I are made of flesh and blood, and by birth we enter into a world and a kingdom of sin, and a world that belongs to Satan. But through Christ... That hold on us can be broken. He said in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's what was happening here. That's why this is so important. Because all of the, the fleshly things that we struggle with on this side of eternity as a Christian are rendered powerless. Satan is rendered powerless through the, through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why he had to be tempted like us. Christ had to be tempted like us because through Christ the fear of death and leaving all of this is replaced by hope of heaven. Verse 15, and that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, I mean, I mean death has a very powerful 
pull on us. I mean, the reality is we get older and older, we can't stop time, and bad things happen, and we see people, and we lose people around us. The reality that this life is temporal, and it can cause that fear, and God says through Jesus Christ, through him becoming like man, tempted like we are, that that fear of death is replaced by a hope of heaven. Christ was tempted because Christ's victory of temptation gives us a mediator to go between, to be a bridge to God the Father. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is a real picture that he is drawing here. And we all understand, if we looked at the Old Testament at all, how the high priest you know, of Israel, he would enter the holiest of holies with a sacrifice for the whole nation. No one but the high priest ever entered this area. And if anyone ever did, they were, they were struck dead. And the sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to have no blemishes. So Christ, he is that high priest, offering his own blood perfect without stain or blemish. He's tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And he offers, as our high priest, he offers that sacrifice in the holiest of holies. And the culmination of this is in verse 18. He says, For since he himself was tempted in what was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So, folks, is that, does the power of sin grip, grip you? Does the fear of leaving this life or not getting everything out of this life that the commercials promised? Does that inhibit your soul? Do you feel like you're losing the battle against sin? Verse 18, since he himself was tempted in that which you know, he has suffered, in other words, he's referring to this temptation here, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Christ can understand. I mean, I don't even have fear of coming to him that he's going to say, here you are again. You've messed up again. You're back in the same place again. He wants us to come. He understands the temptation of sin. That's why I know that this temptation is real that Jesus is going through. It is intense that Jesus is going through because it gave him the ability to be sympathetic and to understand what you and I are going through. Consider Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. It says, For we do not... Oh, I think I've got the wrong ones. Verse 14, 15 and 16. Let me just read it for you. Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of this, let us draw near to him with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The very fact that he endured these temptations and he knows and he understands is what is supposed to draw us to him, not keep us away from him. You know, I've messed up again. Look what I've done with my life. You know, God wants no part of me. No, that's Satan speaking. You've got to go to him. You've got to go to him. He's waiting for you to come. Not to scold us, but to heal us. He wants to free us from the bondage of sin. He says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. 
Again, remember that this is a real temptation. Christ is weak with hunger and pain. And, you know, the idea of a shortcut is very real. And, and he definitely wants to bring it into our life. And he will, Satan will always give us these shortcuts. You know, in the life of Christ, you know, that's, that's where we find truth. Living in the life of Christ and going to him because he has been tempted like we are. When you cry out to God in need, repenting of your sin, desiring mercy, God doesn't say, what is your problem? God has never looked at me and said, you know, just with disappointment. God has never looked at me with shame because of what I have done. Christ has never turned his back on me or you because of what you're going through. I don't, he never says, I don't understand why you're having so much trouble with this temptation. He never says, here we go again. Rather, Christ knows what you're going through. He is sympathetic. He's desiring to help you. He is desiring to free you. Let us draw near. He doesn't just say come near to God. He says come near to God with what? With confidence. I don't have to have any question about it. That has all been settled. That I can come to him with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy, to find grace and help in the time of need. But you've got to go to him. You've got to go to him. He's waiting for you to come. You know, not to be scolded, but to be healed. And as we end this message, again, I just want you to bow your heads for a second because there's, there's, there's application here, folks, for each and every one of us. I know there's application for me. And I'm not sure what it is, the, the need that you have to go to Jesus for, but he is waiting for you. I don't know, you might be a Christian here today and you found yourself caught in a sin. And, you know, for Jesus, it's not important of how you got there and important that you're coming to him for need, to find grace, to find mercy, and to find help. And so in a moment, we're going to have a, a silent time of prayer, and I'm going to give you that opportunity to pray and speak to Jesus about whatever it is that you are going through in your life and you want to give to him. But I also know here that there may be some who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you're, you're hearing about a God today who loves you so much, and maybe your perception of God is that you needed to get your life cleaned up first before you go to him. Folks, that couldn't be more wrong. He wants you to come to him in your time of need. He wants you to come to him to find forgiveness and find redemption. And so as we give a silent time of prayer here, I'm going to allow you the time. You just need to simply ask Christ to forgive your sins. You just need to cry out to him from your heart that you want to become a child of God, that you want to give your life to him, for him to be your Savior and to be your Lord. And if it is genuine today, you know, those that call on the name of the Lord, it says, shall be saved. You can do that right now. So church family, friends, let's go to the Lord right now. Let's speak to him quietly. I'm going to give you a minute or so before I close us in prayer.
Father God, I come to you and and I confess, Lord, I, I don't understand all of this. I cannot understand a love that would do what you did. A love that would see my life, our lives, and say, I need to go down there. I need to give my life. I need to suffer. I need to pay the penalty for their sin to redeem them. I don't understand that, God. But you have told us over and over and over in your word of your undying love for us, your desire, first through the people of Israel to call a people to yourself, and now through the cross of Christ to have us, me, as a, as a brother, sisters in Christ. I thank you, God, for that. Father, I thank you for hearts that have opened up to you right now, knowing that you have received them, knowing that you're going to give them that help that they are genuinely seeking. For anyone out there still who may not know you as Savior, maybe, you know, they understand about religious things, but they can't see a time in their life when they made this definitive decision for you. God, right now, right now, Lord, as they are crying out to you, save them, Father, from their sins. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who is not in the distance, God that isn't even in the future, but a God that is here right now with us. I thank you for your practical working in our lives. I pray, Lord, for that patience and that perseverance to be Christ to those people around in the midst of the trials that are coming in our life. I thank you, God, for that strength. In thy name we pray.